Matthew 1, or 5, 1 to 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. (coughs) Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, Lord of all, Father who sent your Son into this world to save us. Lord, I pray to you, I ask you that at this time you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit and you would give us ears to hear your word that you have spoken through your Son. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear your voice this morning and hear the good news that you have for us and to see that we need to hear from you because we don't live by bread alone. And I thank you for this special time to come together, to open the Bible together, and to listen to your son. So please take this time and change us. Cause us to leave here changed. Cause us to leave here looking to you and rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By far the most exciting thing about reading the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that we get to see, we get to observe, and we get to listen to Jesus Christ directly. And by seeing Jesus, by watching what he does, and by hearing the words that he speaks, we're hearing directly the words of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. When you read the Gospels and you watch Jesus and you listen to him, are you aware of the fact that you're watching God? That's kind of a rare opportunity, isn't it? When, when do we get to watch God? When do we get to listen to God? Now, of course, listening, reading the prophets and reading the apostles' writings and reading about their lives is wonderful because these men were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, in a very true sense, as we read the prophets and the apostles, we are hearing the words of God. There's nothing more wonderful than reading the epistles and reading the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul. But 
even so, there's something special about watching and listening to Jesus. There's something very direct about that. And that's the most exciting thing about the Gospels. And so here in Matthew, we come for the first time to the teachings of Jesus. He hasn't taught thus far. And what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't really give us any warning about this either. He doesn't build up to this. He kind of just jumps right into the middle of the teachings of Jesus. And we have three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which are, familiar, which are known uh, and are familiar to all as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. That's his first teaching in Matthew and Jesus' most famous teaching. Jesus, as you see, sees the multitudes. The multitudes were following him because he was healing the sick. He was a mobile hospital. And he was doing things that the doctors of his day couldn't do. He was curing diseases. He was casting out demons. And this drew people from all over Israel and even beyond. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus goes up into a mountain. Many commentators think he was actually withdrawing. And when he was set, because he was withdrawing from his ministry of healing at this time, people, the multitudes were following him to be healed. The multitudes were following him to have their demon-possessed children delivered. Jesus withdraws to teach. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. And look at what verse 2 says, just how solemn this is. And he opened his mouth and taught them. A.B. Bruce says, we are near heaven here on this mountain with Jesus. We are listening to God teaching man. What does he teach? What does God, what does God in the flesh, with a crowd about him, sitting on a mountain, he's got time, they're there to listen. And what do we find Jesus teaching? What is the great religious teaching of Jesus? And note, he doesn't talk about the grand theme of cosmology. What I mean is how God created this world and theories about the planets and where we came from and where we're going. He doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about mystical experiences. He doesn't talk about seeing angels and miracles. See, many people think those are the high points of religion. You know, if you want to be really religious, if you want to be really spiritual, then you've got to know the mysteries of the cosmos. Or you've got to experience mystical experiences. He doesn't even mention those things. He doesn't talk about ceremonies and liturgies. He doesn't talk about how you're supposed to perform certain ceremonies, the way you're supposed to walk, the way you're supposed to move, the things you're supposed to say. He doesn't do that. Brothers and sisters, notice what is most important to Jesus when he teaches. God teaches us about righteousness. It's all, always, righteousness that is of most importance to God and to Jesus. Do you believe that? 
Righteousness is most important. Not how you do ceremonies, not the mysteries of the cosmos, not mystical experiences. Righteousness. Righteousness. By righteousness, the Bible means moral rightness. Moral rightness. Now, the English word for right can be applied in a non-moral way. What's the right answer to 2 plus 2? That's not a moral question, right? I just used the word right again. When the Bible uses the word righteousness, or when, when we look at the Greek and the Hebrew word of the word righteousness, it's always moral. It's moral rightness. When you are right morally, this is what Jesus is most interested in. This is the theme. Look at a few verses with me throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You can connect the dots and see that this is what Jesus is ultimately interested in. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Verse 10 of chapter 5. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come. Hold on here, I got the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Chapter 6, verse 33. Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The first thing you're supposed to seek, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Jesus teaches us righteousness. The first thing Jesus said in Matthew, when John the Baptist said, I... I should be baptized by you. He said, let it be so that we might fulfill all moral rightness, that we might fulfill all righteousness. Jesus challenged the prevailing view of righteousness in his day. The prevailing view of righteousness in his day was taught by the Pharisees. Okay? And what did the Pharisees believe about righteousness? The Pharisees believed that if you wanted to be right with God morally if you wanted to do the right thing so that God looks upon you and says, Kurt, you are a good person and you deserve entrance into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees would teach Kurt that he needs to obey the law. That seems reasonable. That seems to be what Moses taught. And the Pharisees, in their zeal for obeying the law, they even added to the law. They said, you know, in order to prevent us from breaking the law, we should have additional rules, just in case we cross the line by accident. So the Pharisees taught obedience to the law. They were zealous for that. And here's the important point, though, because there's nothing exactly wrong with that. What's wrong is that the Pharisees believed that it actually worked. The Pharisees believed that they were righteous. Later in Matthew, we're going to see that Jesus challenges this. Jesus taught those who trusted that they were righteous. The Pharisees said, you need to keep the law in order to be righteous, and they thought they were doing it. They thought they'd succeeded. Now, the interesting thing is, 
is if you ask anyone who's honest whether they truly keep the law or not, whether they truly are obedient to God's commandments or not, the honest answer is no, right? Can you truly say before God that you have actually done what he has required you to do? Can you actually say that the commandments of God that he's given, I have accomplished them. I do those commandments. I don't sin because sin is breaking God's commandments. Who can say that they don't sin? Now, I I doubt that the Pharisees would say that they don't sin, but here's how Pharisaical righteousness works, or when people believe like the Pharisees do, that they do indeed keep the commandments. What happens is, is they lower the standards, and this is how Pharisaical righteousness works. They choose five big sins, they don't commit those five, and so they think then they're obedient. They say, yeah, I, 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 I do break other sins. I, I don't keep all the commandments, but here's the big five. Here's the big ones. And as long as you don't keep the big, as long as you don't break those big ones, and I don't break those big ones, then I'm a good person in God's sight, and I'm right with God. That's how the Pharisees thought. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're just talking about obedience to these five. Jesus challenges that view. Jesus says in chapter 5, if you break even the least commandment. Did he say that? The least? If you break even the least commandment, heaven's going to call you the worst. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not in any way enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the Pharisees way of righteousness, you need to have a righteousness better than that or you're not going to make it. Jesus teaches moral rightness in the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you are probably familiar with the beautiful teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about loving your enemies. He teaches us about not doing good deeds to be seen of men. He teaches us about what true godliness and what true reverence and what true obedience looks like. Now, many people challenge the idea that Jesus was original. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard someone say, well, Jesus wasn't the only one who taught that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't the only one who taught that you should be kind to your enemies and you should turn the other cheek. He's not the only one. They challenge his originality. They say, come on, it's not that original. Christians say he's the greatest teacher of all time, religious teacher, moral teacher of all time, but they can point to others. They could point to uh, Muhammad. They could point to um, Buddha, and, and they could show how they teach also moral things. True. But this is where Jesus' Jesus's originality lies. And listen carefully. Jesus Jesus's special teaching of moral rightness lies in this, that he makes it the central issue. See, in other religions, you'll find statements that are beautiful about morality. The problem is they're covered over by all these other teachings and they're obscured. And Jesus takes everything away and says, this is the most central thing of all. This is the most important thing of all, righteousness. That's it. Jesus also clarifies what righteousness is. Whereas other religions will teach you that it's good to turn the other cheek, 
Other religions will say, you're okay if you don't. Jesus says, if you don't, you will in no way enter the kingdom of God. Jesus also offers hope to the hopeless. And we're going to look at that this morning. So, the originality of Jesus isn't that he, he alone taught these things, but he makes it central. He, he challenges us all, all here this morning. You need to think about moral rightness. It's not just good advice. It's not just something that's secondary. You need to think about moral rightness. Are you really a morally right person? Are you really righteous before God? Because if you aren't, you won't enter the kingdom of God. That's the main issue, and he makes it clear. And he clarifies and says, you need to be righteous. Jesus did not teach righteousness casually, as other religions do. One must be righteous to enter the kingdom of God. The other theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God and entrance into it. Matthew 5, verse 3. Notice his teaching on the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19. Whoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach others to do so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever shall do and teach the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's important to hear this again. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven, my friends, unless you have a righteousness that's better than not breaking the big five. Chapter 6, verse 10. He, here he prays, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verse 33 again, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom. Notice how the kingdom of God and righteousness are wedded together as one. Jesus is teaching us we need to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying, you know what, it's really a good idea to live morally. It's really, it's really nice. You should just be a nice person and spread the love around. He's saying, you need to ask yourself, Am I going to enter the kingdom of heaven? And whether I'm going to enter it or not depends upon whether I'm righteous or not. That should make you quake a little bit. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So this is what Jesus teaches us. This is what he's teaching. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not a casual thing. As we read on in the book of Matthew, Jesus teaches us about those who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you familiar with the parable of the wheat and the tares? Jesus says there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's the wheat and there's the tares. Only two kinds of people in this world. The tares are the unrighteous, and the wheat are the righteous. And when the Son of Man returns, the wheat will be gathered into the kingdom of God, and the tares will be gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace. 
it's not a casual thing for you not to enter the kingdom of God. This is the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches about the sheep and the goats. He says there's only two kinds of people in this world, those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. The sheep are the righteous and the goats are the unrighteous, and the sheep will be brought into the everlasting kingdom, and the goats will be cast into everlasting punishment and torment. Jesus also teaches the parable of the kingdom where he says, you're either in or you're out. You're either in or you're out. God invites you to the kingdom of God. You're either in the kingdom or you're out. He says, those who are not in the kingdom. He says, many will come from the east and west and will sit down together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God and all the rest, including the children of the kingdom. There he's referring to the Jewish people who have rejected him. Will be cast into outer darkness. Outer darkness refers to being outside of the kingdom of God. But unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter. So, my friends, these are important stuff. This is important stuff to think about. You need to ask yourself, which are you? Do you think that's an important question to ask yourself? Jesus says it is. Which are you? Sheep or a goat? Wheat or a tear? In or out? One of the two. Are you righteous or are you unrighteous? Do you possess a moral rightness that is greater than the scribes of the Pharisees? Sobering stuff. But now let's go back to Matthew 5. Because in the light of all this, we hear Jesus cry, blessed. The Beatitudes, Latin for blessings or benedictions. Good, a good word from God. The good news, the gospel, starts with blessings. It's interesting that the law is all about curses. Have you ever noticed... Those of you who have read the Old Testament and have read about the law, have you noticed how prominent cursing is in the, in the law? Now, the law promises a blessing and a curse. It says, if you, if you disobey the law, you will be cursed. But if you obey the law, you will be blessed. But God focuses on cursing all the time. I don't know if you've ever noticed the list in Leviticus 26, when God lays out the blessings and the curses. The curses is a lot longer than the blessings. The blessings last maybe four or five verses. The curses last maybe 40-some verses. If you don't obey the law, I'm going to do this. And if you don't obey the law, I'm going to do that. And if you don't obey the law, you're going to be cursed with this. And it goes on and on for the whole chapter. But if you obey the law, I'll bless you. But the cursing is emphasized. I don't know if you remember, but when Joshua was going to take the people into the promised land, Moses instructed him, that when you go in, there's going to be two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And what you're going to do is you're going to divide the people in half. You're going to put half of the people on Mount Ebal, half of the people on Mount Gerizim, and there you're going to preach to them the law and covenant with them that they're going to obey it, and they're all going to agree. And you're going to make a monument of stone and write the entire law on this 
monument of stone. And guess which mountain you're going to put it on? See, Mount Ebal represents the curse, and Mount Gerizim, Gerizim represents the blessing. And so here's the, the, uh, the visual image that God wants us to teach the people. You're covenanting to keep the law. There's a blessing represented by this mountain. There's a curse represented by this mountain. So they can see it visually. And you're going to take the law that's inscribed, and you're going to set it up on the mountain of cursing. How come he didn't say on the mountain of blessing? There was two mountains. He said, write the law on the monument and set it up on the mountain of cursing. On Mount Ebal. Isn't that interesting? What is he trying to teach them by that image? Isn't it a 50-50? No, the law emphasizes the curse. The Bible teaches us that no one will be right, justified, righteous before God by obedience to the law. The law brings a curse, always brings the curse. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, it says in the Bible. That's the visual image. The law brings the curse. That's why it's written on the stone and put on the mountain of cursing. But the good news starts with a blessing. Jesus' preaching begins in the opposite. Blessed. There are eight Beatitudes. Verse 11 and 12 are an expansion of verse 10. So verse 10 is when you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And verse 11 and 12 explain that more. There are eight Beatitudes. The word blessed in the Greek, makarios, it means this. Well off. Fortunate are those. Fortunate and well off. This fortunateness is cause for great happiness. The way that it, it kind of is like is when a little kid sees a friend. Maybe the friend tells the little kid, hey, guess what? We're going to Disneyland. And the little kid goes, lucky. Right? Well, have you ever said that when you were a kid? Oh, lucky. How come you get, you're in a good situation? You're well off. You're fortunate. You get to be happy. Lucky. That's the sense of this word, Macarios. Well off. Lucky. The Greeks used to use the word to refer to the materially rich. If someone was materially rich, they were blessed. They were, they were Macarios. Aww. Oh, they're so well off. They're so fortunate. They're, they're rich. They get to be happy. And Jesus now says, in a great situation, well off are the poor in spirit. And they have great cause to rejoice because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not talking about material wealth here. This is what blessed means. You are well off if you are these things. Christianity is a religion of joy. We've talked a lot about that in 1 John, didn't we? 1 John was written that we might have joy. Jesus says these things in a very similar vein. You are well off and have reason to rejoice if you're poor in spirit. But the Christian's joy is grounded upon unshakable truth and not upon how we feel 
and not upon our temporal circumstances. If we as Christians could realize how well-off we really are, and that our being well-off is kind of paradoxical, it doesn't have to do with whether you're materially rich. It doesn't have to do with whether you're physically healthy. It doesn't have to do with many of the things that give the world joy. The world is happy when things are going well. The Christian has joy if he sees that his joy is rooted upon the things that Jesus says here. Do you believe as a Christian that you can rejoice in the Lord always? Does your Christian faith contain the ability to rejoice in the Lord always? If we don't rejoice always, what does it mean? That there isn't cause to rejoice or that we just aren't seeing that cause? If we're not rejoicing, just blame yourself. But God has abundantly provided for your joy. And like 1 John, Christ wants you to have joy. That's why he said this. He wants you to know you're blessed if you're these things. So let's look at these one by one and see what qualifies us to have joy and say, I'm well off. Verse 3. Now we find that many of these beatitudes are a paradox. Well off are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well off are the mourn, those who mourn, those who weep. Well off are the persecuted. You're getting persecuted, stoned, made fun of, falsely, leap up and down and rejoice and be glad. You are well off because you have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is the opposite of what the world thinks. Well off if you got your life together. Well off if you can be proud about your accomplishments and all men honor you and love you. Then you're well off. People seek these things. Jesus says, you're well off if you're poor in spirit. The word poor is an amazing word in the Greek. It means reduced to begging. See, people read this, people read this uh, expression, poor in spirit, and they miss the whole point. They think it means those who are humble. They possess humility. Well off are those who possess something. Jesus is saying, well off are you if you are destitute and you lack in spirit. Well off if you are reduced to begging in spirit. You're a spiritual beggar. You are well off. All the Beatitudes speak to us spiritually. One can be very rich materially and be poor in spirit. One can have, it seems like everything going for them, but inside they lack. And Jesus says, if you lack inside, you're well off. That's kind of a paradox, isn't it? A beggar asks for what he doesn't have. Well off for those who are spiritual beggars, spiritual paupers. In Jesus' day, people were looked down upon who were beggars. Materially, and spiritually. There's an extremely important 
story that, the, that our Lord tells us about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember this story? This is so very important. Jesus says, a Pharisee goes into the temple to pray and also does a tax collector. And listen to what the Pharisee says. God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. See, that guy wasn't seen as well off to the Pharisee. This was the prevailing view in Jesus' day. Now, the tax collector was probably materially rich. And the Pharisee wasn't thinking, I'm glad I'm not materially rich. He was saying, I'm glad that I'm not a sinner like this guy. I'm glad that I don't lack in morality like this guy. I, here's my big five, pay money and tithe. And I fast twice a week. And I don't steal from people like this man. And I don't live lewdly like this man. I'm glad that I'm not like other men. I don't lack spiritually, God. Thank you. (laughs) We see someone who's poor in spirit contrasted with someone who isn't poor in spirit. Someone who thinks they have spiritual assets and someone who knows they don't have spiritual assets. And the tax collector says he knows his sin. He's so aware of his unworthiness, he doesn't look up even to God. He doesn't lift up his eyes. What a gift it is to be able to lift up your eyes to God. But he doesn't look up to God. He says, God, be merciful to me. There he's begging. God, I don't have, please, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, wow, that man is well off. Jesus says in the parable, which one went away justified? Which one went away righteous? Which one entered the kingdom of God? Blessed are you, my friends, who know that you lack spiritually, who don't trust in yourself that you are righteous and better than others. Blessed are you who know that you're sinners. Charles Spurgeon once said, it's a holy thing to be a sinner. What he meant was, it's a holy thing to recognize you're a sinner. Because many people in the world don't recognize that. They are sinners. They are poor, but they don't know they're poor. And they think they're rich because they don't commit the big five. They're not in a good situation. How can you be in a good situation when you really are destitute and you don't think you are? Happy are those who know their destitution. Happy are those who know they're sinners. Happy are those who are spiritual beggars. Jesus says, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Such a paradox, because throughout this sermon he says, you need to have righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of God. And now he says, those who are destitute of that righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of God. There's a paradox. I want you to know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never once tells us how to be righteous. He simply tells us who will be righteous or who will enter the kingdom of God and what you need is righteousness. But he doesn't teach us the way. And he leaves us in a a mystery here in verse 3. 
What do you mean? You said you need to have righteousness in order to get into the kingdom of God, and now you're saying the ones who don't have righteousness are going to get in. He leaves us there. It's to be explained later. So it's important to understand that. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Father, we ask, well, what's the will of the Father? He doesn't tell you. Not there. He's challenging the prevailing view here. Verse 4. Here's the second blessing. Or well off are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the Old Testament, many times it tells us that when the Messiah comes, he's going to preach good news to the poor and to those who weep and to the brokenhearted. And Jesus is doing this right now with the Beatitudes. It's important to understand that Jesus on this mount saying, well off for the poor in spirit, well off for those who weep, blessed are you. He's giving people hope that don't have hope in that society. And even in, the, in this 21st century, many people don't have hope because they've never heard that there's a blessing for those who mourn. There's a blessing for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's a blessing for those who are poor in spirit. And like in Jesus' day, those were the people who didn't have hope. If they listened, if they went to the synagogue, they wouldn't hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. They would hear, follow the commandments. And if you do that, then you will enter the kingdom of God. Well, these people had, they knew they didn't, so they had no hope. Jesus is now saying, hope for the guys who are rejected by the religious society in their day. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. He's proclaiming good news to those who mourn. He's fulfilling his role as the Messiah in doing this. This isn't talking about mourning in general. Jesus isn't saying, Blessed are those who mourn, because you'll be comforted. Everyone who mourns will be comforted. If you lose a loved one, you mourn, you'll be comforted. Not true. Again, Jesus is talking spiritually here, because not everyone who mourns will be comforted. But everyone who mourns the way that Jesus means will be comforted. And what is that? I get lots of emails from mourners. Recently, I got an email from a mourner. What I mean is this. Sometimes God just sends these anonymous people my way that I've never known. They send me an email and they say, Eli, I was on the website and on your website and I was reading some of your articles or whatever and I just got to tell you, I'm such a bad sinner and I sin past the day of grace and I feel like I'm going to go to hell and I, I just find myself weeping every day and I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't feel like God's going to save me. I'm just afraid I'm going to go to hell. And I don't think there's any hope for me, but can you help me? They're mourners. They're weepers. Many people live through life without a care. They don't think about their sin. They don't think about their spiritual state. They think all is well. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize they're sinners. And Jesus here is giving hope to those who don't have hope. Blessed are those who feel hopeless. Not those who think they've got an abundance of hope because they're such good people. Blessed are those who are losing hope because they're not a good person. Blessed are those who weep over their state. They shall be comforted. There's joy in the morning. M-O-R-N-I-N-G. 
Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. This is the message of, the, of Jesus. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Have you ever wept or mourned over your sins? I, I have. doesn't mean you have to stay mourning forever. You will be comforted. doesn't mean you won't mourn ever again, but you will be comforted when you realize the hope that you can have in Jesus, the abundance of hope that's found in him. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Humility is the trait that eludes us, isn't it? How many of you feel like you've mastered humility? Any humble masters here? <laughs> when you become humble, they give you a, uh, you know, a belt. <laughs> Recently, I went to the LDS Institute of Religion, and in the class that I was in, they were talking about pride. They were discussing pride. And they were saying how pride is an evil. Pride is something that's wrong. Pride is one of the roots of all of our sin. And humility is the ultimate virtue. And so the exhortation was to have humility, to have meekness, and to get rid of pride. He asked an interesting question. The institute teacher asked an interesting question. He said, um, on a scale of one to five, how proud are you? He asked. Or would you say that uh, you're more humble than proud? Or what are you? And we were supposed to discuss it with the person next to us. Well, the interesting thing was, when I was asked, how are you a proud person? I thought to myself, um, I said, yeah, I, I am a proud person. I struggle with pride. But in some things I'm very proud and in other things I'm not. It's kind of not a blanket statement. In some things I am and in some things I'm not. And I shared with the class that according to the Bible, pride is an inevitable wherever we accomplish something. Pride is inevitable wherever you're the one who accomplishes something. Wherever, whatever was done was done by you. Pride is inevitable. And that the only way pride can be eliminated is by grace. Grace is the only remedy for pride. And this is actually what the Bible teaches. It tells us in Romans chapter 4, if Abraham were justified, that's again the word righteous, if Abraham were righteous by his works, now remember, Abraham lived before there was ever a law of Moses, but even in his day, people could work and do good things. If Abraham were righteous by works, he could glory or boast or have pride. He could. But that's not the way it works, Paul said, because he wasn't righteous by his works. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. There, he, he totally removes it from you, doesn't he? And he says in verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If it was of works, you'd boast, because that's inevitable. But it's not of works. The gospel is designed to eliminate our pride. And friends, 
All boasting is sin, obviously. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you received it from God, meaning if it wasn't you that got it, then why do you boast as if you got it? What do you have? He asked that question. It's rhetorical. You don't have anything that you got because of you. Do you believe that? Most people don't believe that. But if you see that, then you don't boast. All boasting is sin. Unfortunately, we don't always see that, so we often sin by boasting. But there is one kind of boasting you absolutely cannot have. And that is, God will not allow you to glory or have pride or boast in your salvation. He will not allow that. And the gospel is designed to remove that. The meek are those who have trusted in God to save them. They aren't looking at their works and looking at their obedience to the law and saying, I have accomplished. I am saved because of what I've done. Otherwise, you can boast. The meek are those who say, I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest I should boast. It's not me. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. So in answer to the question, yeah, there's many things I boast about because I don't, I don't get it through my thick skull that it's God who's given it to me. You know, there's things that I do that I boast in. But I can say this. I don't boast in the fact that, I am, that I've entered the kingdom of heaven. I don't boast in the fact that I've been forgiven. I boast in God. I boast in Him. I say, it's because of Jesus that I'm saved. It's because of Jesus, it's because of God that I've been accepted and not because of me. I have nothing to boast in when it comes to my eternal salvation. This is the meek that are blessed. They shall inherit the earth. Notice the synonyms, the endings of all the Beatitudes are one, entrance into the kingdom of God, comfort, inheritance of the earth. All of these things are one. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Now, of course, if that was just this general statement, none of us would be blessed. But blessed are the meek who are trusting in God for their salvation and not in themselves. When Jesus returns, they shall be with him. Verse 6. Once again, we see righteousness is front and center. Verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hungering and thirsting implies you don't have it. You need it, but you don't have it. And when someone hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they won't settle for anything less than righteousness, if that's truly what they want if that's truly what they need. They're not going to settle for some fake righteousness like the pharisaical righteousness. If, some, if someone is truly aware of their need for moral righteousness before God and they understand what moral righteousness looks like, they're going to realize they don't have it. And when a Pharisee comes along and says, here's the big five, just don't do those, they're going to say, that's not moral righteousness. I need real righteousness. 
I don't need fake righteousness. I need to really know that I'm righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. Many people act like they want to be morally righteous, but because they settle for the unreal, they really aren't that hungry. And the beautiful word here, filled, in the Greek, is so much stronger than the word filled. It means they shall be gorged. (laughs) That's what it means. Well off are those who are hungry for righteousness, who are, are dissatisfied with their lack of righteousness and are hungry and wanting the real thing. They shall be abundantly satisfied, gorged. Isn't that wonderful? Now, can't every Christian say that in Christ there is abundance of righteousness more than we could even ask for? Isn't that true? This, all of these Beatitudes really echo the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you might recall in Isaiah 53, when God says, all you who are thirsty and all you who are hungry, come and be satisfied in abundance, he says, right? Come and buy money. Come, come and eat without money. Come and drink without price. This is a meal that God provides. This is talking about righteousness. God's not talking about physical food here. He's saying, I have provided for you, and apply this to yourself now, every one of you. God has provided for you a meal of such abundance that you will be gorged if you come, and it's totally free. Isaiah 55 follows right on the heels of Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering and the death of Messiah for our justification. Jesus Christ died for our sins. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. If, if, you don't, if these words don't mean anything to you, then maybe you're not poor in spirit. But all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Do you realize that you've done that? Do you realize that you've been a morally bad person? Do you realize that you've disobeyed God's commands? We've all turned it to our own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions, and he did that so that we might be righteous. The great mystery of the gospel is that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ, abundantly provided, so that those who have believed can say, I've been gorged. I'm satisfied with him. So much more to be said about that, but we have to move on. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy implies sin, doesn't it? The world is full of sin, so we really need to be merciful people if we want to live in this world. We had a conversation the other day with a friend on campus, and we talked about a perfect relationship. And a perfect relationship in this sinful world, brothers and sisters, is not a relationship in which there is no sin. Those of, those of you who are married or going to be married, if you want to have a perfect relationship with your spouse, don't look for a spouse who's not a sinner. You won't find one. <laughs> or those who aren't married, uh, don't look for a friend who's not a sinner. You won't find one. Mercy makes a perfect relationship. Mercy 
makes a perfect relationship. The Pharisees lacked mercy. Jesus many times said, if you had only known what mercy was. See, the Pharisees lacked mercy because they were thinking with a whole different paradigm. For them, again, righteousness consisted in keeping commandments and keeping the big five. And so they didn't understand mercy because they believed that they were righteous. And if someone wasn't righteous, then they're sinners. And they shouldn't be accepted and forgiven unless they do what the Pharisees have done. The Pharisees thought God favored them because they were obedient. So why should I favor them if they're disobedient? That's why the Pharisees didn't understand mercy. But the gospel teaches us, the death of Christ teaches us that God loves and is merciful towards the sinners who don't keep his commandments. If you had only known this, Jesus said, then you would have been merciful. When you realize the gospel, now you can be merciful. And mercy is not leniency. Let's divorce those two things far from our mind. Leniency would be, ah, his sin's no big deal, so whatever. I'll just overlook it because it's no big deal. That's not mercy. God had never and will never be lenient towards you. Many people think God is lenient. They think, oh, he'll just forgive me when I get to heaven. He'll just forgive me. No, there is forgiveness, but it's not lenient forgiveness. It's forgiveness that comes through the death of his son. God looks upon you and sees your sin and doesn't say it's no big deal. He deals with your sin in Jesus Christ, crucified. Because Christ shed his blood for our sins, God can be merciful to us, and his mercy in no way implies that sin is not a big deal. His mercy only implies that his grace is greater than all of our sin. So, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who understand mercy because they've received mercy from God. Blessed are those who can look at another person's sin and not say it's not a big deal, but can see Christ and can forgive as they've been forgiven. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the Greek, the word is, blessed are the clean in heart. Blessed are the clean in heart. When Jesus said, blessed are the clean in heart, he again is directly challenging the Pharisees' view of righteousness. And if you recall, Jesus challenged the Pharisees by saying, you guys think you're clean, morally, but your cleanliness is only outward. You clean the outside of the cup, but the inward is filthiness. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are truly clean indeed. Blessed are those who are clean inwardly. They shall see God. Now, if you're, at, if you're to ask yourself if you are clean, kind of like the old Psalm 24, he that has clean hands and a pure heart, would you answer in the affirmative or the negative? Elliot, is your heart clean? Eli, is your heart clean? Terry, is your heart clean? The proverb comes to my mind which says, who can say that they have cleansed their heart? Who can say that? The obvious answer is nobody. This cleansing from our moral uncleanness outward and inward 
brothers and sisters, cannot come through our own obedience and our own washings and our own efforts to make ourselves clean. Good luck. Go try it. Go clean your heart today. It isn't going to happen. But this cleansing comes to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we learn in the New Testament, in verses like 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin, inward and outward. The blood of Christ doesn't just make us clean on the outside, but it truly cleanses us before God on the inside also. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. And turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Blessed are those who are of a clean heart. It tells us in Acts 15 verse 9 who they are. Acts 15 verse 9. It says, And God put no difference between us and them, cleaning, this is the same Greek word, cleaning their hearts by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then your heart is clean before God from all of its moral impurity. And God sees you as spotless in his sight. And because you are clean, therefore, you shall see God. What a beautiful expression that we can't even begin to explain what that would be to see God. But only the clean in heart will see God. Not only, not the outwardly clean only. Now we're running out of time. So just very briefly, the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness The rabbis spoke about peacemaking often. A peacemaker is one who brought men to the law. When you teach a man to be obedient to the law, you have brought peace to this world and peace with that man and God. That was how they taught peacemaking. Makes sense to a lot of people. But Jesus and the apostles teach us something different. Because no one will be right with God by obedience to the law. Peacemaking is when you bring someone to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. You've made peace between that person and God when they have put their faith in Jesus. And you teach men peace between man and man when you teach them how to live through that faith in the grace of God. God is the ultimate peacemaker and his children are like him is what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those. And lastly, in verse 10, Jesus mentions righteousness again, and he says you'll be persecuted for it. And who are the number one persecutors of, of the Christians for righteousness' sake? The Pharisees, yes. So let this be cemented in your mind. We've talked about this before. But let it be cemented in your mind that true persecution is for righteousness' sake. Jesus says Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Many people are persecuted for many different reasons, and Jesus does not give his blessing for anything but if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
And the interesting thing is, the ones who will persecute you, as Jesus teaches over and over and over again in the Gospels, is the religious, is the pharisaical, is the ones who think that righteousness is by obeying the big five. And when you come along and say, no, righteousness isn't by obeying the big five, actually, you, my friends, are an unrighteous sinner as well. And this tax collector who is poor in spirit and who's mourning for his sins and who's looking to Christ and his grace, he's actually the one who's justified. And the Pharisee says, blasphemy. But he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. He, in verse 11, he says, blessed are you. He says to his own disciples, the ones who are following him, Because we learn here that it is for his sake. Look, brothers and sisters, to verse 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. My sake is equivalent to righteousness' sake because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Our righteousness is of him. Maybe I'll offend a few people, but you are looking at a man who is a sinner. I break the commandments of God. I'm ashamed to say it. And I don't have an excuse for that. I have a conscience that God's given me and I know right from wrong and I know when I do wrong and I know I should do right and I know that I'm able to do right and I don't. You're looking at a sinner. You're looking at someone who, if the law of God were to judge me, I would be found unrighteous and not be accepted in the kingdom of God. According to the law, I don't have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, but you are looking at someone for whom Jesus Christ died. And Christ died for my sins. And that was a gift of grace. I didn't deserve that and I didn't expect that. But Jesus died for my sins. He saw all my sins, past, present, and future. And he is the one whom God put my iniquities upon. And Christ suffered for my sins and died. And now I'm a spiritual beggar. And I have believed this good news. That God saves sinners through his son Jesus Christ and that God justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ. And now you're looking at someone who's actually righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to heaven because I keep five commandments. In fact, I don't deserve to go to heaven on the basis of my works. That's why I have no reason to boast. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to heaven because Christ died for me, and my sins have been <laughs> taken away. God, through his son's blood, have, has cleansed me from my sin. And so God sees me as a righteous person and my righteousness doesn't consist in, in and of my own works, but my righteousness consists in Jesus Christ. I've been hated for that belief. I've been called a devil for that belief. <laughs> but it's all about righteousness through Jesus Christ. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets which were before you, meaning this, that you stand in the line of the prophets because both the prophets and the apostles preached righteousness through faith in Jesus.
in conclusion, if you noticed, all the Beatitudes are about righteousness and the kingdom of God. But they do contain a mystery that I've been touching upon that Jesus doesn't explicitly say. But this mystery is that there's good news for the least likely. It's those that the world says are not well off that God says are well off and have cause for great joy. And this is because it's not by the law that we enter the kingdom of God, for that would be the successful. But it's through Christ, and that would be for the failures. Which are you? Are you a blessed one? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for preaching good news to the poor in spirit. And thank you for teaching us righteousness and showing us that righteousness is the main thing. Righteousness is the central thing and not a secondary thing. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is guilty of pharisaical righteousness, and they trust in themselves that they're good because they do certain commandments. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to hear the truth about righteousness. Help them to see that the law requires total obedience and that no one is righteous by the law. Lord, turn the blind Turn those who think that they're rich into spiritual beggars and cause us all, Lord, to see how well off we are, those who have believed the good news of the gospel, that we might rejoice in the truth that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have believed in you. Thank you that we will see you one day. Thank you for making us clean through your blood. And thank you, Lord, for showing us these things. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.